Transforming Society podcast is brought to you by Bristol University Press and Policy Press. In episodes covering a wide range of social issues, we speak to authors and editors about their books and journals to get to grips with the story their research tells and look at the specific ways in which it could transform society for the better. In this episode, we spoke to Natasha Lindstadt, Deputy Dean and Professor in the Department of Government at the University of Essex, an author of Democratic Decay and Authoritarian Resurgence, published by Bristol University Press. This is an engaging textbook full of real-world examples that looks at why democracies fall apart and what can be done about it. Hi, Natasha. Hi, thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming. Thank you for speaking to us. So I've read the book and you start by saying that after decades of progress, democracy around the world has hit a snag. I feel like that might be an understatement. Um, Before we start to think through the reasons why, could you give us a quick overview of the current landscape? Yes, so we're we're definitely in a democratic slump. Uh, There's more autocracies today than democracies. So to give an example, in 2010, 48% of the world lived in authoritarian regimes. Today, it's up to 68%. And we only have 14% of the world living in liberal democracies. Uh, And we have more countries that are in the process of autocratizing than democratizing. Uh, So it's been uh, one of the worst periods since, um, I mean, really in in decades. And this democratic decay started probably 2006, 2007, 2008. We started to notice that more countries were were really moving towards um, authoritarianism. Uh, Now, that doesn't mean that there aren't any democracies out there. Of course, there are democracies and there are still some countries who are trying to democratize and there have been some um, really amazing uh, turnarounds that have taken place. But generally, this uh, this period has not been good for democracy. So this might be an obvious question, but how do you define democracy and how is it measured? Well, it's a good question because people really differ in terms of the way that they define democracy. I mean, the simplest definition to distinguish a democracy from an authoritarian regime is the role of elections. Uh, So democracies have free and fair elections where there's the actual turnover and power of the executive and autocracies do not. So almost all the regimes in the world hold elections. A very, very few, just a handful don't hold elections. But just because you hold an election doesn't mean you're a democracy. You have to have some kind of turnover in power there. Right. Now, we could add to that other things. You might want to look at civil liberties, whether or not there's freedom of speech, assembly, association, freedom of religion, freedom of press. Um, and then you may also want to look at what types of checks and balances exist on the executive. Um, is there any kind of mechanisms of accountability? Uh, on the executive or other um, elected office holders. And then to go even a step further, you might look at the state and the quality of the state uh, bureaucracy and, and what types of services the state is able to provide and um, whether or not uh, there is some level of um, effort from the state to, to try to ensure that there's not huge levels of equality, of inequality, I should say. Uh, So there's a lot of different ways of measuring democracy, but when it really comes down to it, we're really looking at the role of elections. Okay, thank you. In the book, you show how democratic breakdown and autocratization happen simultaneously. It feels like you need both for a swing to happen. 
So if we could just talk about democratic breakdown first. What are some of the causes of this? I mean, in the book, you highlight things like public opinion and the loss of trust, globalization and corruption, but it feels like there are a lot of factors at play. Right. And so I just want to highlight first that this process of a democracy breaking down, in contrast to years in the past where it was mostly through a coup, uh, where the military would stage some sort of coup and it was this very immediate and sudden event. Democracy is breaking down really slowly. It's happening in this very peaceful fashion. And all these different cuts to democracy that are taking place, sometimes people aren't, I mean, oftentimes people aren't really aware that it's happening. Right. And so we, we have all these other factors that are kind of coming into play, uh, global factors like globalization. And so globalization, and, I think initially we thought this was going to be a force for good for democracy. This was going to help diffuse democratic norms uh, and really uh, help people access ideas uh, about what you know democracy is about and information about democracy. Um, but it's also been a source of tension. There have been rising levels of inequality uh, within states uh, that creates tension. Uh, there is then the perception of unbridled immigration. And though immigration actually isn't bad for democracy at all, um, but what hasn't been good is this perception uh, from some people that this, this immigration is um, the type of immigration where, where people's jobs are being taken. And of course the, the reality is very far from that, but these perceptions of immigration are really interesting to look at. Yeah. You can also look at the role of the international media uh, in stoking fires and, and polarizing people um, by focusing on some of these really hot and uh, hotly contested and uh, controversial issues and, and, and exacerbating tensions that, that um, really where you need to just be focusing on informing people. And the same can be said of the national media. So some parts of the book, I talk about the role of the media because the media is so important to democracy. Um, but for the most part, the media has been spending more time polarizing publics um, than, than really informing them. And of course, social media has a big role in that too. Other factors are of course, corruption. When countries are corrupt, that's really bad for democracy. Uh, and in some ways we, we think of democracy as uh, integral to the definition of democracy is that there's accountability um, and uh, so, some mechanisms of, of ensuring there's the rule of law, um, but you know cor corruption can erode at a democracy, and so there can be countries that have free and fair elections. But corruption of the bureaucracy um, really helps, uh, I guess, just expedites uh, low levels of trust. Uh, and then I think you also have to look at the economy. When the economy is doing better, democracies flourish more. Um, when their economies are stronger, they, they struggle more when their economies aren't doing as well. And I think it's also important to look at the role of elites. Uh, the, you, know, you could have a leader that comes in and they just have no um, interest in maintaining a democracy. They have no interest in adhering to democratic norms. And they can be quite powerful in the way that they can destroy democratic norms overnight. And, and this has been said many times, democracy takes a really long time to build, but it, it can it can decay uh, very quickly. And I think that you need to look at the role of some of these elites in, in just not wanting to promote these types of democratic norms. 
Mm. And there are a few different phrases for this process that we're talking about. So what's the difference between democratic decay, democratic backsliding and autocratization? And why did you choose to use the word decay in the title of the book? So democratic decay and democratic backsliding are the same thing. Uh, this really just refers to countries that had some institutional um, aspect that was democratic, whether they had, you know, elections that were relatively free and fair, or they, they were, for all intents and purposes, democratic, and they start to become less democratic. Now, autocratization is, uh, is a word that uh, really includes anything. So it, it could be a really, really authoritarian regime becoming more autocratic. And so this word applies to, to literally any regime out there. Um, okay. So it can be used for any case of any country becoming more autocratic. Where technically speaking, uh, democratic decay is referring to a country that had some kind of democratic institutions there. And I just chose democratic decay because uh, it, it had a nice ring to it. Um, and a lot of the countries that the book focuses on are these um, democracies, in some cases, fully consolidated democracies that have been decaying over time. And I felt decay also indicated that something was just kind of old and starting to get worse. And you know, over time, it was just getting slowly worse. I wanted to convey an image of the process being very slow uh, and yes. because that is, is what has been happening, that it kind of has been happening over time and that we haven't even really noticed it. And, and now we're starting to see um, the, the evidence of it more fully. Yeah, decay really um, emphasizes that, doesn't it? Okay, so on the other side of democratic decay, we've obviously at the same time seen the rise of authoritarian leaders like Bolsonaro, Trump and Zuma in the last decade. Um, we've covered democratic decay and how this creates an environment in which this kind of auto autocratization can happen. So where it's already weak, autocratic leaders can attack democracy through the media and institutions to consolidate and maintain their position. But please, can you talk us through this process and how it explains the authoritarian resurgence that we've seen in recent decades? Right. So what I'm talking about here, and, and as you referred to Bolsonaro, Trump, Orban and Zuma as autocratic leaders, I mean, they are they were democratically elected. Uh, but their leadership styles are very authoritarian and they just happen to be elected in democracies, but they've all done great damage um, to, to their countries in, in Brazil, the US and Hungary in, in South Africa. Uh, and it, the, the process starts first by really going after the media and delegitimizing the media. And I think some of these leaders may have looked to leaders like like Putin or more traditional autocrats uh, or, or people who you think of more firmly as an autocrat. Mm. And, and it was um, part of the playbook to just go after the media and delegitimize it. And that way, whatever information that comes out that criticizes the leader or is counter to what the leader is doing is suddenly become quote unquote fake news. It, yeah. it, it's post, it's like a post truth era. There's no real truth uh, and suddenly this watchdog role that the media plays and is so important to democracy, that role becomes diminished 
because no matter what they say, the leader can say, I have this other truth. I have my other facts. And all this information coming out that is criticizing me is purely fake. So once they've done that, then they can manipulate the public and use referendum, uh, referenda to uh, get the public to essentially cut democracy themselves, to, to cut at democracy themselves. And so they may decide that uh, in the name of democracy, they're going to get rid of term limits, for example. Okay. So this was something that Hugo Chavez did in Venezuela. Uh, and this was something that Rafael Correa tried to do uh, in Ecuador. It's a very common tactic is that we, we got to get rid of term limits. This isn't democratic because what the people really want is for me to be in power indefinitely. And they may use referenda to do other things like create uh, these separate legislative councils or these separate senates. And this is, again, something that Chavez did. He, he created his own second legislative body that he personally appointed that in the end would have more power than the elected legislative body. Uh, and, and there are other ways of weakening uh, the legislature, but but one way is to actually use the people to vote for rules and legislation that uh, creates these secondary uh, legislative organs uh, that, that have more power than the elected ones. And, and they'll do it in the name of democracy. They'll say, this is going to give you, the people, power. Uh, another thing that these uh, leaders can do is they can politicize the judiciary, um, which we've seen in, in the case of Trump. Um, who, who wanted to appoint not judges that would, would appeal to a wide range of those in, in, uh, in the Senate, which obviously has to confirm the Supreme Court justices, but, but clearly appointed the most right-wing, uh, what he perceived to be pliant judges that he could find. And more alarming for the judicial system was not just what happened in the Supreme Court, but what happened uh, with some of these federal judges. Um, and so there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of federal judges, really, really thousands of federal judicial appointments uh, that he made, not on the basis of merit and, and some of these um, inquiries revealed this, but on the basis of who he thought was, were going to be loyal to him personally. Yeah. Uh, so there's a, a big attack on institutional norms uh, where rules exist. They're being circumvented. They're being ignored. Uh, Orban in uh, Hungary has been a master at this, but he's also been a master at using uh, his two thirds support uh, to uh, enact rules uh, that, that basically are able to keep him and his Fidesz party in power indefinitely. And the final thing is you, you, you hollow out the state. Uh, and we've seen this with um, many uh, autocratic-like leaders that they just appoint lackeys into the bureaucratic civil service you know, position yeah. uh, so to facilitate uh, whatever their end goal is. Yeah, you can see how all these different moves just chip away and weaken democracy over a long period of time, can't you? Um, early on in the book, you speak about the grey zone. What is this and why is it important to examine it? So I think for many years, we had categorized democracies in one category and autocracies in another category. And there wasn't a lot of understanding that there were all kinds of regimes that were really more in the middle. They weren't completely autocratic, nor were they completely democratic. And so if you were a, a liberal democracy and then everything else was this big residual category of what is not a liberal democracy. 
And what we're finding is that most companies early fall within this gray zone, uh, some because they are just weak, they don't have the capacity to become fully democratic, some because they are trying to democratize, and they used to be more authoritarian, and, and some because they're really um, eroding. Uh, they're, they're, maybe they were trying to be democratic, um, but they're becoming increasingly autocratic. So we, we don't have as many purely authoritarian regimes. Some of this is also because authoritarian regimes have become more clever and adept at using democratic institutions to prolong themselves in power. Okay. But I think it's important to look at the gray zone and to, to realize that there are some of these regimes that look like they are gray zone regimes, look like they're a hybrid regime, and there's so many different words to describe this, uh, but are really authoritarian regimes just being, being clever, uh, manipulating people, using democratic institutions, and they have no intention of ever democratizing. And you know, the use of elections is not in any way uh, to be democratic. It is simply because it, they know that this actually helps them sustain themselves in power longer. So I think it's just important to take a careful look at what's going on in the middle, what's going on in the gray zone. This is the majority of most of the countries in the world. Uh, and also to better understand when, when is this uh, something that, that looks like a democracy, but, but really is not. So what do you think the impact of the pandemic will be on democracy globally? Well, what we found just in, in, and this is all very recent research, uh, is that there, there have been some uh, attacks on democracy due to the pandemic. It's about nine democracies um, that were registering some major violations, uh, meaning they were using uh, the pandemic in order to strengthen power of the executive and weaken civil liberties. And about 23 democracies have um, incurred moderate violations of international norms of democracy. Um, on the autocratic side, 55 authoritarian regimes have engaged in pretty major or moderate violations. And two thirds of all countries around the world have imposed restrictions on the media that they don't really want the media to report things because it doesn't make them look good. So we think that the final toll on democracy um, could be really high if we don't return to some of these pre-pandemic restrictions. Um, but at the moment, it's too, too soon to tell uh, because at the same time, we've seen protests uh, and uh, accompanying this democratic slump. And we've seen protests even in the midst of, of a pandemic. Um, so there's, um, it's, it's difficult to make a clear prediction just because the pandemic has caused such extreme events around the world. Yeah, protest is something I actually wanted to talk about with you. Um, you say in the book that pro-democracy protests have led to democratization in 22 countries since 2010, but feels like protests such as that, those at the Capitol earlier this year have been an attack on the very concept of democracy. Um, so what is the, aside from the pandemic, what is the role of protest in the destruction or protection of democracy? Right, so it's important to just first note that the protests at the Capitol have been labeled by the US government as an act of terrorism. And so we have this wide spectrum of, of behavior of, of when it's nonviolent, we do call it a protest. And when protests um, become violent, you start to see different labels being attached 
to yeah, it. Yeah, you do. Uh, and when violent protests happen, um, and it's coming from what we would refer to as illiberal civil society, uh, where maybe these are protests of people who want to uh, clamp down on civil liberties, or, or they want, or their hate groups, or they want to clamp down on um, diversity. Um, these are not good for democracy in, in any way. Uh, and it's very uh, difficult and important questions that states have to ask themselves about how they deal with these types of movements in a society. Um, it, these, these types of movements can be incredibly destructive for democracy because sometimes what they try to do is in the name of uh, civil liberties and their freedoms, they feel like they need to be free to, to be in completely intolerant of others uh, and violent towards others. Yeah. Um, so, so these types of movements aren't helpful for democracy at all. Um, but protest is uh, a normal process. Uh, and it's a normal part of democracy uh, that you should be free to, to protest because there needs to be some kind of give and take and some kind of communication between the public um, and the government. And, and protests are a form of communication and nonviolent protests are actually really effective and have been really effective and, and by far the, are, are much more effective actually than, than violent protests are in, in getting whatever their, their viewpoints uh, across. Uh, so I wouldn't look at the number of protests in a country and say that, that that's a sign that that democracy is falling apart. It could be that these are genuinely um, pro-democratic protests that are important for, for communicating uh, about certain issues that might not be, be heard about mm -hmm. and to really helping foment change and progress. Yeah, that's really helpful. Thank you, especially the distinction between violent and nonviolent protest, I think. Um, so I have a couple of, we're getting towards the end now and I have a couple of questions about the future. Um, do you think there will be a democratic resurgence in the near future? That's a really good question. I, I think, that key to having a democratic resurgence, I mean, based, based on studies that have looked at the level of democracy, the key is that there's a democratic hegemon that is committed to not only democracy, but also equality. And when we've had the highest levels of democracy, it's because there's a, a, a democratic hegemon. We, we've seen a vacuum. And so Europe has tried to, to play an important role uh, in promoting democracy. And you know that European Union plays a big role in, in trying to you know, promote democracy uh, and support civil society groups and political uh, groups. But the, the vacuum created by the US uh, was significant uh, and allowed for the rise of counter narratives from authoritarian regimes. Uh, and, and so this is something that's been studied for decades, the, the importance of a hegemon. The, the US uh, has become more committed to democracy again after many years of, of decaying. Mm -hmm. And so we'll see if, if that is going to be enough. Um, it'll be important for the European Union to, to be united in its ideals and to not squabble with one another. And yeah. it'll be important for other democratic uh, major actors uh, to, to also um, be committed to, to the importance of human rights uh, and, and to do so in a non-hypocritical way. It, it can't be that human rights matter when it's only important to that country's foreign policy and then it suddenly doesn't matter other times. Yeah. Uh, so it's, 
it's it's important for the hegemon to have a lot of soft power to be considered legitimate uh, and to to practice what they preach so that, that they themselves are also committed to human rights yeah definitely um so my final question um it feels like there's a certain inevitability to the rise and fall of democracy but are there any potential solutions to curb the evolving threats to democratic systems? Um, you mentioned the role of civil society just now, and you talk about that in the book as well, for example. Right. Now, civil society is definitely an important player in any democracy. So countries that have an absence of civil society, it's really difficult for democracy to ever really flourish um, because there is no give and take or communication taking place between the public and, and the state, and instead it's, uh, you know, the state is basically free to do whatever they, they want. Um, and, and so it's important, of course, in any democracy, it's considered one of the building blocks to have a vibrant civil society where people are active and politically interested and politically aware. But I think I would add to it the importance of an educational system and how important it is to ensure that people are being educated about democratic norms, in particular norms of equality and tolerance uh, we've seen this actually play a really important role in this, the case of Tunisia, really the only country uh, from the Arab Spring that was able to democratize, uh, though they had years and years of authoritarianism. But one thing we found by looking at their educational system is how much they promoted norms of tolerance and tolerance of others, tolerance of other religions, other different people. And these things need to be taught in schools. You need to teach people what democracy is, what human rights are. We've seen the difficulty of doing this in another case in Myanmar, which has uh, become increasingly authoritarian with the military clamping down on protesters and the military effectively back in power. But they didn't have in their language the word democracy. Uh, it was very difficult to teach about democracy and democratic norms because there was absolutely no exposure to it. Uh, but we also see that we need to educate people about fake news about information where you get good information um, we're finding that when leaders are using referenda they, they 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 use these types of mechanisms because they know they can manipulate the public pretty easily um, because they're not going to have access to to good information and, and the people don't know how to decipher between what's fake and what's not fake so it's very easy to to fool people we saw this in the case of Bolsonaro's um, rise to power. There was a WhatsApp campaign that was um, communicating all kinds of falsehoods about Bolsonaro's opponent that people just readily believed. They easily right. believed that these Venezuelan voting machines uh, were uh, creating all kinds of fraud. If that many people believe this kind of stuff, it becomes very difficult for democracy to function. So educational systems are important. I, I want to add to that, and this is becoming more an, of an issue. It's a, obviously a really huge issue in the US, um, but it's becoming more of an issue in Europe as well, is the issue of campaign finance reform. Oh, yeah. The 2020 election uh, was the most expensive ever. 14 billion was spent on it. Um, and there was uh, a lot of dark money where you don't really know where it was coming from. And when money becomes so important in an election, then this is gonna dictate policy. And, and that's really, really problematic and, and worrisome for any democracy. Um, it, but the final issue, which is something I, I mentioned in the book, I didn't go really in great detail into, but it, it's really important to involve more women in politics. Hmm. The countries that are the most democratic are also the ones that have the most women right. um, in, in, in political positions and representation. 
so I'm thinking mostly of Scandinavian countries, but we see that this is better in, in countries that are outside of Scandinavia as well. We have more women involved in politics. Uh, it, these countries, there's a, just a correlation here. These countries are more democratic. Uh, and, and the arrow seems to, it seems to go both ways. Countries can't democratize until there's women's equality and countries, once they've democratized are more likely to um, promote equality uh, yeah. of, of gender. Um, so it, it's, it's one of the uh, indicators that's really important to look at to, to, to give you or to signpost you know, the, 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 the quality of, of a democracy. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, that's a really interesting idea to end on and um, maybe gives a little bit of optimism for a bit more of a democratic future. Um, they were some big, complicated ideas, incredibly well explained. So thank you very much, Natasha. Thanks for having me. Um, and the book does the same and more. You can find out more about Natasha's book, which is called Democratic Decay and Authoritarian Resurgence on our website. And the URL for that is bristoluniversitypress.co.uk.